I'm Julian G. Simmons, and this is Our Gen Pod. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Our Gen Pod. For those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome. After our series of episodes focusing on the state of civility in America, we've come to realize that civility is at the core of just about everything we do. It can be as simple as saying thank you or as cataclysmic as the war in Ukraine. So we'll continue to talk about it as we focus on other important topics. We're always on the lookout for unusual and thought-provoking ideas. And for this episode, we bring you a fascinating conversation I had with evolutionary scientist and writer Elliot Schreffer. You may have heard his interview on NPR's All Things Considered or seen his recent appearance on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Elliot is the author of several books, both fiction and nonfiction, but what brought him to our attention was his latest work, Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. This is a breakthrough book. With Queer Ducks, Elliot reveals some startling science that shatters stereotypes about what society has long assumed was natural. When you realize how genetically similar we are to apes, what Elliot reveals about the behavior of animals naturally extends to us too. That pulls the rug out from under some very destructive prejudices that have been the basis for centuries of misguided morals and cruel flaws in our laws. Here's my interview with Elliot Schreffer. I'm so, so excited to have you here on Argen Pod. Your new book is called Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. It's quite a compelling title. I really want to talk about sexuality and same-sex behavior in the animal world and how that might really change our perspective as a society by putting to rest some of these old arguments. What do you think Queer Ducks reveals about sexuality in the animal world? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's really a joy to be here and to get to talk to you and your Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're looking forward to this conversation. I think, you know, I, I'm a gay man. And so I was ready to love any story coming out of the natural world that validated and affirmed a diversity of sexual expression beyond the heteronormative assumptions that we have. But on this, at the same side, I come from a background of studying evolutionary biology, and I had assumed that any studies that found significant same-sex sexual behavior in animals might also find that it was kind of an anomaly based on a situation or a certain population, or that it was a very rare occurrence because I just assumed any activities that don't get a significant boost in the, the genetics that are in the next generation wouldn't be selected for over the course of evolution. And obviously, two males or two females having sex doesn't immediately produce offspring. So it doesn't seem like an evolutionary advantage. But basically, we've learned over the last 30 years through a ton of different studies that there's a huge variety of advantages to sex in animals as well as for humans. And only one of those is procreation. And so a lot of animals are getting social benefits from frequent same-sex sexual behaviors. And this is, you know, nature did a study finding that 1,500 different animal species have 
significant amounts of same-sex sexual behavior in the wild. So it is, you know, these are we're talking like doodlebugs all the way through dolphins and the bonobos, which I'm sure right. we'll, we'll talk about in Japanese macaque monkeys and amphibians and reptiles. And it's just, we've been looking at animals through too narrow a lens, and that's had a huge repercussion on the way that we look at human sexuality and what we count as natural. And this started for you when I guess you were going through the throes of your own sexual identity when you were, I guess, a teen or maybe younger even? Yeah. Well, when I was a teen, so this was then I was probably 11 or 12 when I realized I was gay. And at that point, you know, I looked up homosexuality in encyclopedia and just learned that it was this psychological error that happened to some humans, that it had no analog in the natural world. This would have been like the 1990. So it was a tough few years. And I came out on the other side with the sort of Oscar Wilde version of what it means to be gay, right? Like, it's not natural. That's <laughs> wonderful. Like, let's just be artificial and huge and conventionality is dumb anyway. So let's just forget about it and embrace our queerness, which is a totally valid way of looking at sexuality, of course. But it also, there is all this information that just wasn't available to me at that young age that I think would have sped that journey to self-acceptance along fact that we have so many animals that are engaged in lifelong same-sex relationships or are engaged in a sort of a more polyamory or promiscuity that crosses gender lines. If I had known about that, then all that messaging I was taking in subconsciously about the unnaturalness of gayness or bisexuality, it wouldn't have cost as much. But it also set you on this journey to learn more about evolution, correct? Yeah, yeah. And so I think for me, you know, as a, I grew up an atheist and I still am an atheist. And I think I was hungry for a sort of structure and order to the world. And to me, discovering this book on evolution in the public library was actually a big source of comfort. And I remember just sitting as a teenager, just sitting on the carpet and reading this whole book from front to front to end about evolution, because it gives you a reason for why everything exists. I mean, that's what, that's what the Bible does, if you believe that. And I didn't have that. And for me, evolution is, it makes, makes you realize that life is not random, is no accident, that there is a order to it through a mm -hmm. scientific, almost secular way. But it became hugely important to me. And I find it so fascinating thinking about the reasons why behaviors and characteristics came to be. So how did you find in your research and studying into evolution, how did you find an order that you fit into? Yeah, so this was more recently. So I... I'm part of the animal studies graduate program at New York University. And we had a number of scholars come through. And just the way the biological sciences work is that most academics have an animal that's their specialty. You know, they start studying it as a grad student and it becomes their, their main focus at their field site. And one after one, all of these scholars coming through were, were talking about, or just mentioned over the course of their discussions, same-sex sexual behavior in their animals. You know, and this was a bottlenose dolphin here or a gecko or, you know, a ram. And it just raised this question for me, like I had assumed that this wouldn't be as prevalent as it was. And so I looked for something out there that would like a book that would explain it all. And I didn't find one or I found a couple of very academic texts, but nothing that was public facing on the, on the subject. And that's what led me into this deep dive into the research that's out there in this wealth of science that to bring it together and look at what are the main reasons for it. So Queer Ducks is 10 different chapters with 10 different emblematic animals, each broaching one question around this field. Like, are we underestimating bisexuality? Or why would gay things exist? Is there a genetic component to sexuality or is it mostly learned? And through these various animal species, tackling some of those questions. And what did you find? So I found there's, there's a huge variety of reasons for 
same-sex sex and animals. I assume we'll we'll talk about the bonobos in a bit because I know it's an interest of yours for sure. Right. Um, but even beyond them, you have some like in the case of insects. I think the the consensus right now is that any the the, the risk of losing a mating opportunity is too high, and so insects will will very readily mate with males or females. Um, it doesn't have a high cost and it's worth it just in case there ends up being offspring somehow involved. Mm-hmm. But the more sophisticated animals like primates, every sex act is a huge social benefit to sex. You know, sex produces oxytocin, which is known as the bonding hormone. And it, it makes you have a feeling of closeness, which has a huge social survival advantage. So in the case of bottlenose dolphins, for example, male unions are the most dominant union within their society. Males and females come together only for a week or two. The female goes off to raise her calf by herself, but males are bonded through life through very frequent sexual activity. Isn't um, oxytocin, am I saying that right? Oxytocin, uh, I, yeah. I remember I was watching a program recently. I think it was, um, you can change your mind. I think it's called or something. It was. It's about mushrooms and MDMA and all this on Netflix, this special which was pretty fascinating but isn't like also oxytocin the the thing that kind of breaks down inhibitions and ego if you will isn't it the same effect so that it, you're more open to life I think we I might guess? be talking about different things it doesn't have like a hallucinatory effect or, or change the way that you're thinking necessarily from the outside but mm-hmm. it does it is produced through physical contact of any sort and so it it's first produced through mother and child in mammals you know, during breastfeeding and it's all other sorts of physical interaction also produce it if they're done in a friendly way. So it's, and it exists or some version of oxytocin exists from ants all the way up through homo sapiens. So it's the, it's the way that unions happen among animals is the release of this hormone and same sex sexual behavior is, is a great way to have it. Obviously. One of the yeah. scholars I talked to for the book, he was also, he had the question like, why would queerness exist in nature? And basically the result he came to was that bisexuality is not costly for animals. They still procreate, they still have offspring, but if they also have uh, unions or sex with members of the same sex or, or gender, then they're also reaping all the social benefits they get from that as well. So why not, right? Like why why not partake in, on both sides if there's an advantage to it? Yeah, I'm gonna jump to bonobos here and and chimps and apes in general, including gorillas. Now, is, is it just the bonobos who tend to have this more bisexual, I don't want to say tendency, I'm not sure the word I want to say, but I haven't read anything about that with chimps or gorillas. Is it also true of the other apes or is it really exclusive to bonobos? Yeah, in, in some ways, the more I looked at it, you know, I came to the subject of the great apes through bonobos because I was inspired by their example. And it's a yes and a no, because in some ways, bonobos just have a really great publicist. Like they have this impression of the make love, not war ape. And it seems like in comparison, the other apes don't have the same kind of hippie society they do. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that assumption has actually put blinders on us as far as what what is happening. There's, there's a, a good amount of research about homosexual sex among chimpanzees. Males will have sex in order to reconcile after a fight for example, and, and females will also have sex. And in gorillas, there's a lot of male sexual activity as well. So it's bonobos are just really notable for the frequency with which they have the same sex. So, so are they all pansexual or is it more a bonobo thing? They, they all are. So the basic summary from the animal world is that we are massively overestimating the prevalence of straightness because of our own cultural expectations. And then animals, bisexuality really rules the day because without shame prohibiting it, like shame is a human specialty. Animals don't have that. Without shame, animals are very willing to have 
occasional or more substantial same-sex sex. Yeah, they don't sit around there going, oh, should, should I? I? Like, people are going to judge I don't me? Know. Like, people are like, this is uncomfortable? <laughs> right, like, exactly. Are they going to redefine me? Are the other bonobos going to walk away from me right. or shun me? Yeah, yeah, I, it's yeah like exactly. Two young chimps will have, you know, like sexual play, even if they are two males or two females. And it's just like, why wouldn't they? They have these organs that are making them feel good. And so they just go for it. It's interesting. We were, recently did an interview with a, a gentleman named Shepard Siegel, who wrote a couple of books, one disruptive plan, one about the trickster in mythology and history and in society. And we talked about the differences between moral and amoral and how our society, because they tend to be religious, people in our society have put amoral as something bad. And the animal world is amoral. I mean, they don't live by the, the kind of morals that we put upon ourselves. So doesn't it almost make it impossible to compare the two? Well, I think Franz de Waal, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's one of the foremost bonobo yeah. scholars, and he also writes a lot about all the great apes. And one of his interests is the evolution of morality, which had to have come from somewhere because we have you know a natural history behind us. And somewhere we got the idea of a moral order and a feeling of moral justice and that that came from somewhere. And he looks at the bonobos and he says at the most basic level, morality is the difference between is and ought, right? That this is the way it is, and this is the way it ought to be. And we make moral judgments to get towards what, what it ought to be instead of what it is. And he um, sees that in the bonobos. So there's experiments with bonobo apes where they will one bonobo will be put in a room where there's access to food. They have the option of, of pulling a, a tie that will open the cage so another bonobo nearby can also have access to the food. So if it's just acting selfishly, it can have all the food to itself. Or if it decides it's the right thing to do to give access to, a, to a, another bonobo, it will open the gate. And bonobos will do that. They will allow another ape access to the food out of a sense of fairness, whereas chimpanzees actually won't in general. So they will just get all the food for themselves and take the selfish the selfish choice. So, I mean, it's not like our sophisticated morality, but it is a moral choice that's being made, I think, by the ape. So there is a right and wrong aspect to it? Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So what about the fact that, you know, we don't have to go into it in great detail, but I think it'd be interesting for listeners to know that bonobos are a matriarchal society as opposed to chimps, which are really male-dominated how much do you think that plays into what we're seeing in bonobos and chimps? Yeah. So the way you could think about bonobo society is it is a society in which not just females are in charge, which is true, but mothers are in charge. They all have infants. And because females are running the hierarchy and they have easily damaged infants, they have a vested interest in having a more peaceful world. Whereas chimpanzees with males who are unsure of the parentage of any one infant, they have far less interest in keeping any individual infant safe. And so a culture of violence can spread more easily among the chimpanzees. But I mean, the way that the females among bonobos cement this matriarchy is through their really frequent female-female sex. And so they're basically a sexually connected set of mothers. And it's the same way that, you know, you can feel close to someone after two hours of small talk. Bonobos don't have access to the small talk version, right? And so they have really frequent sexual activity. It can be really quick. It doesn't always have to be to completion, I guess. It can be, they call it the bonobo handshake. It's often just, if they see each other after a few hours apart, they'll do a quick rub of their genitals, say, um, in order to, to reunify and reestablish their, their union. 
And this, and this, and this really close sense of connection has allowed the females to have a strong alliance in the face of male aggression. But the females correcting the males will often do so through violence. Some of the males have scars or the missing bits of their fingers where they've been bitten off by females. So male bonobos, if, if they act up, the primatologists will say they get corrected by the females, but it's, uh, it's, they'll have four or five females coming to the aid of any one that they get, they start bullying or start getting aggressive towards. So it's, it's ultimately sex is at the, at the root of their peaceful society. There's that wonderful example of the honey. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a great parallel, parallel experiment. And this is actually Franz de Waal writes about it in his book, Bonobo, that they gave, you can give a novel food source to a group of animals. And that's when you really see the hierarchy come out because all of a sudden there's like, who's going to get the food, right? Is a big question. So when you give honey, which is a very desirable food to a group of chimpanzees, the, whichever male is the top of the patriarchy and is strongest will come in take the food, give it to his allies, his male allies, and right. that is generally as far as it goes. Whereas when you run the same experiment with a group of bonobo apes, they will all circle the food, get really anxious about how is this food source going to be divided up? And then rather than going in and, and trying to split it up, they will just all start to have sex. So you just have this like giant bonobo <laughs> orgy happens. Young and old, male and male, male, female, female, female. And once everyone is kind of all blissed out and just laying there, one will casually reach forward to get some of the honey and another one will as well. And you have like little tiny bonobos eating out of the, the jaws of, of really strong males. And everyone's just so calm and chill because they're all really kind of blissed out after this activity. So it's, a, it's another model for how to be. And Franz de Waal describes it as that the chimps resolve sexual issues through power and the bonobos resolve power issues through sex, which I think is a great way to summarize the difference between the two. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who wonders how something, obviously, like I've heard you say yourself, you know, it's not like we're going to go around and all have sex with each other if we're, we're trying to ease the tension or divvy up the goods or the food or something. But um, do you think there's something that we can learn from that? Yeah, well, I think there's one thing that's really interesting, first of all, both these animals, depending on who's doing the, the genome breakdown, are basically tied as our closest relatives. So this is like a perfect metaphor for what human nature could be. Like no, no animal is closer to us. We, we are both these creatures. But I think, you know, the prevailing theory for why they developed these different cultures, I think is really interesting, which is four million years ago, bonobos and chimps were the same species. There was no difference. It was just one animal. And at that point, there was geographical changes in Africa that formed the Congo River, which separated bonobos and chimps. And mm -hmm. once you have a boundary and enough time goes by, speciation happens, which means that they develop into different animals over time. And mm -hmm. bonobos were in this smaller territory that had more food access. And because of having more food around meant females could go foraging together and never have to split up. And so females were able to always stay unified, which prevented males from ever getting aggressive. Whereas chimpanzees didn't have enough food available in their part of Congo and had to forage alone if they were a female because they wouldn't find enough food if they were with other females. So because of that, male chimpanzees learned they could get aggressive towards any one female because they were solo and so that they were vulnerable to aggression. So you had the rise of this patriarchal, sometimes homicidal chimpanzee society in which males kept power because females weren't able to unionize, basically. And I think when you look at it, it's at the root of this is access to resources. It's interesting because I'm really into genealogy and have had my DNA analyzed and I've, I'm not 
at all an expert on it, but I've read a lot about our origins, especially ancient origins. And, you know, there's there were the hunter-gatherers and then there were the farmers. And the hunter-gatherers are the ones who did all the killing and were in a situation where they were probably living constantly in that fight-or-flight situation, whereas farmers, not so much. And when you're talking about the chimps and the bonobos, I see kind of a correlation there, you know, where bonobos, they, are, they were in a small area, but they were secure in their environment. And chimps had to constantly be in this struggle to fight to get what they needed and to be secure. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, I think, and it's, and basically, when you think about it, it kind of matches with the way we see humans act. Like when there's enough to go around, you can afford kindness. And when resources become limited, you have this tooth and nail struggle for survival. And then it's harder to be generous with those around you. Now, you spent time at, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, Lolo Yavanobo. That's right. Yeah. Which is the bonobo sanctuary in the Democratic Republic of Congo. What did you walk away with from that experience of seeing them firsthand. So the, the sanctuary is basically like an orphanage that's outside of Kinshasa, the capital of Congo. And it's got, at any given time, it's got about 60 bonobos there who all came in through a history of some sort of trauma. I mean, there's a the bushmeat trade is still rampant in uh, Eastern Congo. And so these hunters will go in and kill the adults for meat and then try to sell these infants in the marketplace. So when they're seized by the government or by the sanctuary, they're brought there to, to live and be raised by human mothers who have the kind of the coolest job you can imagine. They just spend all day hanging out with baby apes, baby bonobos. And once they get healthy enough and socialized enough, then they're brought to a release site further out in Congo. So I was only at the sanctuary itself. So it's basically, it looks a little like, you know, Jurassic Park, like these giant electric fences and then the apes living on the other side of it. So I could observe them and take notes. And it was it was great to see them, but it wasn't quite like, you know, being David Attenborough out in the wild, observing animals. <laughs> well, that's too bad yeah. in a way, but because I was wondering if you actually got to like have, you know, bonobos hanging all over you. I did. Yeah, I did. I went into the nursery. So You did? Yes. Oh, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you would not want to have adult bonobos hanging all over you because they would think they were playing, but they are three times stronger than us. So they would easily break you entirely. The, How big are bonobos? They At their largest, maybe 70 pounds. Oh, so they're quite large. Yeah, but their muscle tissue is very different than ours. So they have much higher strength than we do. Because they they have those feet that are like hands and they can climb all over. Yeah, everything. yeah, prehensile feet and everything. Yep. And they're very sinewy. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Let's talk, let's just skip over for a minute and talk about Endangered, one of your books, which I just loved. You wrote it for the young adult reader, correct? Yeah. But as an adult, I got a ton out of it. And I think it's because as I was reading it, I was thinking it's such a wonderful way to educate and enlighten people about bonobos. And the fact that your protagonist is this young girl, her mother is African and her father is an Italian-American who's white. She's put into peril basically by a war that breaks out in Congo and she ends up hiding out with the bonobos, but then kind of becomes the bonobo mother, the matriarch for all these bonobos, which obviously was unintentional. But what what was it that compelled you to write that story? Sophie's story came to me by accident, actually. I bought a pair of 
pants that were Bonobo's brand. It's like a kind of khaki. Oh, yes, yeah. of course. I know. So I, I just Googled why they got this name and where it came from. And that's when I found out about the species of ape. And I just became so inspired by that, what they represented about kind of the better selves that we could be, this peaceful ape. And so I was reading a memoir by a primatologist named Vanessa Woods, and it was about her time at Lolea Bonobo at the sanctuary. And she was talking about just being on a ride along and just like the stories of these young orphans who are being, after going through so much, were being raised to be healthy and to have a chance at surviving, like really captured my emotions. And I think I'm always alert as a fiction writer to things that make me feel deeply. And this is a story that really got my heart, this true story of, of her experiences. And so I started thinking about, you know, what would, since I had been writing for young adults, like what would a teenage eye of this situation be? And you know, there's a way in which Sophie is 13, she turns 14 over the course of the book. Otto is a one-year-old bonobo ape that she adopts from the side of the road. And when the country falls into war, they basically have to survive the wartime together. And, you know, when you're 13 or 14, you're not an adult. And, you're, and most 13 or 14-year-olds are not imagining having kids anytime soon. But it's still like somewhere out there is the idea of it. And an ape, a bonobo, is sort of like a pet, but also sort of like a child. And it was a way to sort of look at an unusual form of like being a parent and a child and what we what we owe to each other as parents and children and, and also what we owe to the natural world. So it was a way to look at all of all of that together. Um, it's interesting because when I was reading the book, you get the sense of her, of Sophie, and she's she's like, wait a minute, why am I going through this at my age? You know, you get that sense, which is because she's dealing with these issues and situations that most adults wouldn't be able to handle. But the interesting thing is one of the reasons she can handle it is because she's younger and the adaptability of someone who's younger, I think. And also she's she's got an understanding and she's very compassionate. Yeah. The one one part from reader response I know is that she is being a child is when she has the option to leave Congo early on and she decides not to in order to stay with Otto, the ape. And that's when adults are like, okay, that's stupid. Like she should have, she should have gotten airlifted out when she had the chance uh, during this right. war. But that was, that was definitely her being 13 and not being, you know, mature beyond her years. So I'm shocked that it hasn't been made into a movie or a, a mini series because it is just so perfect right now. Well, any, any film producers listening, give me a call. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really is perfect for now. When I originally contacted you. It was about this idea that I had after listening to Queer Docs about civility, because we're running this series on the state of civility in America. Obviously, the, the big thing about endangered is living in a world where civil society is brought down to living somewhere where you don't have to worry about getting killed all the time, not just killed, but raped and butchered and all kinds of horrible things and takeovers of governments and rebels and things like that are, are are very common in Africa. They happen a lot, especially in certain countries. And so do you think that we as Americans are too hypersensitive about civility compared to places like that? Yeah, I, I do think the infinite ways in which our current society is showing fractures and our, our notion of what our democracy is, is showing stress from from forces that want to be undemocratic. Those are all true. and I, But I do think at the same time that within the broader scale of history, we are still in a remarkably civil time that we're living in. It doesn't mean we don't have to be vigilant about what's happening. But I think, you know, my experience in Congo was an example of, of the same rate at which Congolese have to worry about being murdered. The average age of mortality in Congo is 40. And that is 
actually not from violent death. The most frequent way people are dying is just by waterborne illness. Malaria and things as well. Yeah. Well, and, and you have a government that is doesn't actually need its tax base to get rich because you have the selling of minerals that to are being smuggled out through governmental means and being sold directly. And then you have basically enslaved labor getting them. So you, the, getting a healthy, educated populace is not necessarily a priority for the government. And so it's it's caused this real crisis and you don't just don't have sanitation. And so any glass of water could be the one that killed you. And that is mm. how people go for the most part when they're, when they're dying in Congo. And that's clear in the book, in your book, how she's always concerned about the water yeah. and, and I, what could happen to her. And I never, until that experience, I'd never sort of looked at a glass of water that I got out of my tap and thought, I'm so grateful this, that I know this won't kill me. Like it might not taste, taste good, but it, it won't, it won't kill me. And that was something I was like, this is one of the benefits of a, of a highly organized and structured and wealthy society that I, I had taken for granted that all those basic things that allow me to worry about other things. And that is when those are taken away, you become very aware of it. One thing that I wanted to ask you about after reading Queer Ducks, it makes me acutely aware of the whole question of how we look at the wild world around us that we all came from, our connection or disconnection to it now, and how much of that disconnection is hurting us from not really understanding what nature is about. Can, yeah. Does that? Yeah, totally. I, do, do you see the question in mm -hmm, there? <laughs> I do. It's a big one. Well, one of the ways in which, you know, if I based, using the research from Queer Docs, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post magazine that came out a couple of weeks ago about queer animal behavior and, and ways in which animals blur sexual boundaries. And it was interesting to read the comments on that. And a lot of the comments were from farmers who said, yeah, duh. Like this is, I've seen this all the time. I had gay geese, I had a gay bull, and I didn't know what to do. He wouldn't mate with any of the females. And like, there's just this long history of people whose lives are spent around animals of seeing them as individuals and as having uh, individual priorities and personalities. Uh, and that if we don't, you know, a lot of us have pets, but it ends there. And if we don't have a constant exposure to a lot of animals, I think it's sort of they exist in a kind of imagined space. And for a while now, we've started thinking about history as being created by historians and that that part matters, that it's whoever has won the war is the one that writes the history of the war. It's traditionally men writing about how everything works. And so the stories of women can be missing from history. And we haven't really brought that thinking around to science until fairly recently, that science is created by scientists and that the biases of a scientist are going to be expressed in the science that they're doing as well. And, you know, if you talk to a Hindu or a Buddhist, you get a very different version of animals than if you talk to a Christian or Jew or a, someone who's Muslim. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have those three religions all come from that Abrahamic worldview in which humans were created on a totally separate day. And that we're the only creatures with souls, that we have a much greater capacity and we're created in God's image and that all other animals were were not. And they were therefore our dominion or our ours to use as we as we see fit. I had this experience once. I had a friend who had a dog who died. And I said, do you want me to come over, you know, just hang out with you? And she said, I would really love to go to this church and light a candle. And I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take you to the church. And we went into the church and there were no votive candles. So I said, well, just sit down here in the pew and I'll, I'll go over to the rectory and ask them if they have any candles. So I go to the rectory and priest answers the door and and I said do you and do you have any candles for the church because there's none in there and he goes oh yeah absolutely so he goes come on I'll walk over with you back to the church so as we're walking to the church he said can I ask who you're lighting the candle for 
And I said, oh, I'm, I'm not actually lighting the candle. My friend is because her dog just died. And he just lost it. He literally started screaming at me that we could not light a candle in the church because animals do not have souls. And I said, well, this is just to comfort her because she was I literally started to cry when she heard him screaming like that. He would not back down from that at all and couldn't find a place to at least let her light a candle to, to quell her grief. It really had such a huge impact on me as far as the dangers of religion and how it can be such a good thing for people and at the same time, such a bad thing. It's a case of like codified morality, really causing a harm in that case. And then the actual right. morality of wanting to do right by your friend and be kind to someone who's suffering and just do a small thing to make them feel better. It's also a moral act that was obviously coming head to head with a different version or a different way of thinking about morality. Yeah, it's kind of exactly. a natural resource, right? And so I think that has really prohibited us from seeing animals in terms of their behavior. And one of the examples I really loved looking at for the book was Conrad Lorenz, who's a ethologist, which is someone who studies animal behavior. And in the 1960s, he won a Nobel Prize for his work writing about gray lag geese in the wild. And he was bemoaning the fact that he could see a goose who had lost his mate and the goose would be clearly in grief, but he wasn't able to say it was in grief. He'd have to say its wings were drooping, it had a lowered pulse, it didn't show its usual attentiveness in how it was getting food and just stayed in the nest all day. But if he said it was experiencing grief, then he would be accused of anthropomorphism and, and assigning human characteristics to this non-human animal. Right. And that was a scientific fallacy. And I think anthropomorphism is something that all scientists are worried that it's going to be an accusation that will come their way. And so they, that we've overcorrected to denying animals' internal states and to recognizing them when we see them. And that's had a huge cost as far as animal awareness of animal suffering and what we're allowing ourselves to do to animals. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, too, because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about briefly was how long it's taken for scientists to actually write on the page that there is bisexuality, pansexuality in the animal world, or that the, simply that there's same-sex behavior in the animal world, not just the animal world, but intervertebrates across the board. But it's not just a question of anthropomorphism that's stopping them from doing that, is it? It's a question of morals that is stopping them from doing yeah, that. And uh, I would add a confirmation bias, too, that, that we tend to see what we think we're going to see, even subconsciously. And so most animals are sexually monomorphic, which means the males and the females look identical. Uh, and so when you see two penguins mounting each other, if your assumption is that, oh, sure, animal sex is male-female, then that's what you're going to see. You're not going to bother to sex those penguins. But it's actually very hard to determine if a, a penguin is a male or a female. You can't, there's no external examination that will do it. It takes a blood test. And so we have just long assumed, you know, like when you watch that movie, March of the Penguins, which was praised as this return to the nuclear family and the, the lengths the male and the female would go to to, to be, be with each other. You know, a third of those couples were most likely same sex because a third of penguin couples and their mating rituals are between members of the same sex. Um, and But scientists weren't bothering to sex them because we just assumed that that didn't it wasn't happening. Uh, and so it, it doesn't have to be intentional erasure. It can also be just 
Ignorance? Yeah. Your, your assumptions affect what you see. Yeah. Well, that, that would actually brings it back to this. I was thinking, well, how much of it is just accepting what has been told to us? It's just like, you know, I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but it's like accepting what's in the Bible as truth and that it came from God instead of a bunch of guys sitting around saying, okay, well, we're going to say women shouldn't sleep with their, their dead husband's brothers and, you know, whatever it is. There's a lot of morality put on all these things. And when you look at birds, and you're absolutely right, there's a lot of times, I don't know if that's a female or a male. I know usually by color that the males tend to be more colorful, but a lot of times you can't tell. But it seems like people just accepted at face value that this is heterosexual. Where do you see it at now? I mean, is it our uh, heterosexual scientists becoming more enlightened? Or is it just the the gay, queer people who are in the field now who are making a point of it? Uh, I think I certainly interviewed multiple scientists who identify as heterosexual who are writing on and observing a, a multiplicity of animal sexualities. But I think it's still fairly slow to get out there. I think it's pretty telling that one of the foremost academic works on same-sex sexual behavior in animals called Homosexual Behavior in Animals. The editor's in order to put the, the collection together, the anthology, the editors approached existing study sites and said, do you have data on same-sex sex in your animals? And the answer for many of them was, yes, we just haven't published on it. Here's the data. We'll write an art chapter for your book. And I think there's a, a lag time around publishing on it because you know many of the scientists doing the work are PhD students who have to get peer-reviewed by the existing scholars in their field, and those scholars haven't written on it. And it's much easier, and you get funding if you write about foraging strategies in your animal instead of same-sex sexual behavior. So the, just the, the architecture of the way the academic system works is also puts a, a lot of inertia on there. Like if there's 600 pages of literature on cardinals and you're studying cardinals and those 600 pages don't mention same-sex sexual behavior, it's easier not to ruffle feathers, so to speak, if you don't mention it in your, your article it's coming up to. So it's slow moving. So where are we with animals as far as are we now recognizing them as having emotions, or is that still something that's frowned upon? Uh, I think it is certainly is, there's a big growth, and the the growth of ethology, animal behavior study as a field, is a sign of that. That we are much more willing to see them as sentient beings that have feelings. You know, in the days when Jane Goodall got ridiculed within the academy when she named her chimpanzees, but she credits that with allowing her in the 1960s to actually identify them as individuals and see family lines and make some of her biggest great breakthroughs. I, th I don't think she would be critiqued in the same way now. I think we've, we've come a long way, uh, but we have a long way to go in it. I think there's still the assumption that, you know, any human life is worth more than an infinite number of animal lives. You know, I think that is something that people are, are believed to their core to be true. Uh, and I think that affects a lot about the ways that we approach the natural world and what the assumptions we make around it. Well, I think with the fact that most people still eat meat, I think they would have to come to terms with the fact that they're eating a thinking, feeling creature. And that is something yeah, that, shut you know, that down, right? <laughs> blinders have to be on, you know, because that that's not going to work. I mean, even though you can see there is a shift happening, but it's probably never going to be the 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 shift that it needs to be. What actually brings it back to civility, because I do want to talk a little bit more about what can we learn, for example, from bonobos in creating a more civil society? I mean, have you 
thought about this at all as far as what humans might want to start thinking about? Well, I think female access to power is something that benefits welfare for the whole group, is something that bonobos show, and that our patriarchal model of mostly men in positions of authority comes up with a lot high cost to it. So personally, you know, I am male, but I would love to live in a matriarchy. I would love to have females in charge. So I think, you know, just looking at our political systems and, and who we support and how we agitate to get laws protecting the rights of women and access for women to higher and higher forms of leadership and power, I think is, is very important. Um, I started thinking about the genetic links and how those genetic links might come out in behavior Especially the the similarities between chimps and people who tend to be more conservative, and that bonobos tended to be more like peace-loving liberals, the hippies of the of the animal world, and it just kind of reaffirmed my feelings of identifying with bonobos much more than with chimps. And I'm not saying chimps are bad. I'm just saying that is it possible? Do you think that? Some people got more of the bonobo gene. Yeah, well, I think thinking of them in a binary way as being incredibly distinct animals is useful when you're thinking of like models and metaphors for human approaches. Uh, and I think that is valid. I do think the science is increasingly showing that what we think of as, as sort of an extreme difference in the ways that they are, it might not actually be as extreme that you have some violence among bonobos and you have some same-sex sexual behavior among chimpanzees, that there's a lot more room for, for nuance than, than we might Think. But I think there is the bonobo emphasis on cooperation and connecting, um, whereas there's more of a chimpanzee feeling of domination and increasing personal power. That is certainly a worthy way of, of looking at the ways that humans can interact. Um, I'm not sure if I can go on the same limb and say that that matches up too smoothly with the political climate, but it's an interesting way to think and something to explore. It's just a question that I want to put out there, and that's why I wanted to ask you, because I want our audience to think about the fact that, first of all, that we're much more connected to the animal world than we think we are. And I'm constantly talking in, in these podcasts about people reconnecting with nature so that they have a better understanding, a better perspective of our place in all of it. I know there was like a million other things I wanted to ask you, but we're just about done here. I hope this was enjoyable for you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, made me think hard. I really want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has really been fun. And as I said, I, I really made me think uh, a lot of new things. So I'm really glad for our conversation. I hope you found that interview as enjoyable and eye-opening as I did. It definitely can shake our beliefs, but I hope you'll have an open mind and consider the evidence. I really urge you to buy this book or the audiobook version and share this episode with your friends and family. There are two things that particularly stuck out for me as I read Elliot's books. With Queer Ducks, it was how tactfully and unapologetically he presents these revolutionary facts about what he found through his thorough research and extensive interviews. He's really sticking it to the hateful homophobes out there but he does it so nicely. To me, that's the essence of civility. I'm also proud to hear Elliot say our conversation gave him some food for thought. Especially fascinating is the question of the genetic roots of human behavior. Posing new ideas about why some of us are all about aggression and some of us, like those bonobos, 
are into cooperation and kindness. But maybe it's in our genes. Maybe we were born this way. I highly recommend Queer Ducks and Endangered if you're interested in learning more about animal sexuality and its connection to our own nature. You'll find links to all his books on our website, www.ourgenpod.com. We thank you for listening to our program, and if you like what you hear, please help us keep it going by doing a few simple things. Like us on your favorite podcast platform, give us a rating, and leave comments there. Use the recording app on our website to join in the conversation. It's a fun and easy way to send us a voice message that we will include in an upcoming episode. And last but not least, if you're able, please donate on the website. We really need a little help from our friends to keep this going. Thank you to our amazing and talented director, Rob Wilson, without whom this show wouldn't happen. And to our pal, Bill Aldridge, for his theme music. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening. Unless otherwise noted, all content in this podcast is copyright unauthorized films. This podcast includes copyrighted material, which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the Fair Use Section of U.S. Copyright Law Section 107, which reads, the fair use of a copyrighted work for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research is not an infringement of copyright. Further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at ourgenpod.com.